0: You're listening to TIP.
1: Hey, how's everyone doing out there? Today, we've got an interesting show for you that covers one of our favorite billionaires, Mr. Charlie Munger. Munger's net worth is about $1.5 billion, And as most people know, he's Warren Buffett's vice chairman at Berkshire Hathaway. As we've talked about on previous episodes, Munger is really a brilliant individual that's considered a polymath. But something that few people know about Charlie Munger is that he's an investor with the Daily Journal Corporation in Los Angeles, California. As a result, he does a question and answer period every year at their annual shareholder meeting. One of our good friends, Hari Ramachandra, was one of the few people that were lucky enough to attend the Daily Journal's meeting this year. And while he was there, he captured some of the best comments that Charlie gave. So similar to the way that we cover the Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting each year, get ready for an interesting show that captures one of the smartest people's thoughts on a variety of investing topics. So here we go.
0: You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected.
1: All right, how's everyone doing out there? And uh, like we said in the introduction, uh, we're going to be talking about Charlie Munger today. We're really excited to have Hari Ramachandra with us. As everyone knows, he's part of our mastermind group. And Hari was the one who brought this one to us because Hari was privileged enough to actually attend the uh, Daily Journal annual meeting with Charlie Munger. And it's not a big group. I know from the video that I had access to that I watched, It was a pretty small room, Hari. It looked like there was about 100, 200 people there at most, right?
2: Yes, about 200 people, I would say.
1: Before we start diving into some of the questions and doing our analysis of Charlie's comments, I want to have Hari describe to us what the Daily Journal is, why Charlie Munger is a part of it, and kind of a little bit about the meeting.
2: Daily Journal Corporation is a publishing company. It is headquartered in Los Angeles, California. They have two divisions. One is the newspaper division, which is their traditional business. However, they also have a new venture, they call it as Journal Technologies. And the Journal Technologies essentially makes software. And these are case management software systems for courts and prosecutors and public defenders and stuff like that. And this is a venture bet, as Munger calls it. And the reason Daily Journal got popular is because Munger is a longtime vice chairman of this company since 1977. However, nobody paid attention until Munger invested $20 million of Daily Journal's cash during the 2009 crash into few companies like Wells Fargo, U.S. Bank and Costco. And by end of 2016, that $20 million was worth $166 million in <laughs> the Daily Journal portfolio. Wow! And from then on, I guess before that, there were only few who attended the Daily Journal annual meeting.
1: First of all, how did you get asked or how did you get access to this
2: meeting? The fact that very few people know about this meeting makes the audience much less in number than the Berkshire. And I hope after this show... Next year when I go, I don't have too much competition.
1: So what uh, Hari was saying is this was the last time they're having the meeting. This meeting will probably never happen again. Right, Hari? (laughs) 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 But anyway, so it's a very small gathering and it's just Charlie. And Charlie's answering questions for about two hours for anybody in the room. From what I understand, after he's done asking all the questions, he's very accessible. I know I got a Christmas card from Hari this year that had a picture of him and Charlie Munger together, arms wrapped around each other like they were brothers. Is that true, Hari? I mean, what did you get to say to him after the meeting was over?
2: One of the interesting thing about this meeting is Charlie is much more relaxed and much more colorful than he is at Berkshire. And he spoke almost an hour or two after the two hour long meeting with folks who had come from all over the place. Conversations are very candid and Very interesting. So I would encourage everyone to listen to that.
1: So we're going to have links to uh, Hari's article in our show notes. And just so people know, Hari blogs at a blog called bitsbusiness.com. But we'll have the links to all that in our show notes. And he has links to these videos that you can watch the full cut. What we're going to do is we're going to go through some of the audio of Charlie's responses to what we kind of picked out as being some of the better questions and some of the better responses that he provided during the meeting. Some really, really interesting stuff. So, the first thing that we're going to play here for you is in the past, anyone who tracks cryptocurrencies and payment processing things that are really kind of emerging and evolving here, Charlie has been a real naysayer of a lot of this stuff. I forget what his exact quote was whenever he was on CNBC when he was asked about Bitcoin, but it was something of the lines like, This stuff is absolutely an abomination or just a disaster. I can't remember what he said, but very, very negative position on it. When you hear this clip, I'm curious to hear what people will think after they hear what he has to say now.
3: Is american
4: Express value proposition more in terms of payment, or is it more in terms of service and rewards? I want to tell you, I'm confused too. I think that if you think you understand exactly what's going to happen to payment systems 10 years out, you're probably under some state of delusion. It's very hard to know. So if you're confused, all I can say is welcome to the club. They're doing the best they can. They've got some huge advantages. It's a reasonable bet, but nobody knows. I don't know if IBM is going to sell that much of Watson. I always say I'm agnostic on the subject. And you're talking about payment system 10 years out, I'm agnostic on that too. I think if you keep trying do the right thing and you play the game hard, your chances are better. But I don't think those things are knowable. Think of how
1: fast they change. So this was a fascinating exchange. The person initially asked, in case you didn't hear that, he was asking about American Express and where he thought that was going to go. And he basically said, hey, if you think you understand where this is going, you have no idea. Something that I also found interesting at the tail end there was the jab at IBM. You know, I mean, that was a real jab that he threw there at IBM. Like, I don't even know that they can sell this Watson. And was this meeting before the Berkshire? This was in February, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So this was back in February. So this was before the Berkshire meeting, which basically showed his hand a little bit of what was to come with the IBM pullback as well.
2: Yeah. Um, what is interesting, Kristen, is even in the meeting one year before, the CJSU has annual meeting. So even in 2016, somebody had asked Munger about Berkshire's IBM bet. And Munger had even then said that, He is not sure about IBM. And he said, I'm agnostic, and it is not a cinch. It is not something that Warren would really understand as much as he would when he invested in Coca Cola, for example. Yeah.
1: No, and I remember that from the year before because we went to the meeting two years ago. And I think, Stig, we even talked about this on the show, right? They basically did this tap dance routine. For like one minute and literally gave nothing away. Kind of like, oh yeah, we understand it. And then like, that was it. And then they like ran away from the question and they didn't talk any IBM stuff. So.
5: And I think whenever you listen to Monger, he's usually a very honest, very candid, especially with the recordings that you were going to listen to later in this episode, whatever he says in public, especially when he is with Warren, that's really because he doesn't want to be disloyal in any way. I think whenever you Google something about Monger and IBM, which we did prior to the show as research, he never really thought it would be a good idea. And it's not really in hindsight today where he's like, well, it didn't pan out like immediate, whenever Warren Buffett made the purchase, he was really, really skeptical about it. So I just think it's really interesting to see him in that role as well. So Hari, did you read into his response
1: as kind of a nod towards blockchain technology there with the payment processing and all that kind of stuff changing in the next 10 years? Because that's how I took it.
2: Yeah, I think what Munger is saying is that the rate of change is so rapid and in such an environment, it's really hard for anybody to make predictions. He doesn't want to take any sides because as Munger would say, unless he can argue well from both sides, he doesn't allow himself to hold an opinion. I think he hasn't completed his homework yet. That's how I see about payment systems and cryptocurrencies.
1: When we interviewed Ed Thorpe, I saw the exact same approach to basically designing his idea of the probabilities on both sides. If he couldn't really argue one side or the other, it was just an immediate 50% default. And you're seeing kind of the same thing with Munger and the way that he kind of answers this question. When Munger is later asked about what book he would recommend that he's currently reading or something that would be a good read, he actually recommends Ed Thorpe's new book, that came out whenever we interviewed him on our show. So that was kind of interesting that Munger was recommending his
0: book.
5: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored
0: by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All
2: right, back to the show. He also had a lot of good things to say about Ed Thorpe. He actually spoke quite a bit about Ed Thorpe and then the book. So that was interesting.
1: Hmm. All right, so let's go ahead and go to the next question. Now, this is one that I've seen a lot on Twitter. This is something that I've seen in some of the forums. Because ETF investing has become so popular lately, you got a couple people that you'll read from time to time talking about how because everyone's piling into ETFs that whenever we do see a contraction and we do see the market pullback, that it's going to be this really abrupt and seismic kind of event that occurs because so much of the money is being pushed into these ETFs and then spread across the breadth of the entire market. So this next question hints at that, and and we're going to hear what Munger says and thinks about that topic.
3: Hello, Mr. Munger, William Andreeskin, student at USC, wonderful stories. With regard to the proliferation of index funds, do you think that there may be issues of liquidity anytime we go through another large crisis? And then do you think that that will create large discrepancies between the price of the index fund and the values of the securities underneath?
4: Well. The index funds of the S&P is like 75% of the market. So I don't think the exact problem you're talking about is going to be a big problem if you're talking about the S&P index. But is there a point where index funds theoretically can't work? Of course. If everybody bought nothing but index funds, the whole world wouldn't work as people expect. There's also the problem, one of the reasons you buy a big index, like the S&P, is because if you buy a small index, And it gets popular, it's a self-defeating situation. When the nifty-fifty were the rage, J.P. Morgan talked everybody into buying just 50 stocks. And they didn't care what the price was, they just bought those 50 stocks. And of course, in due time, their own buying forced those 50 stocks up to 60 times earnings, whereupon it broke and everything went down by about two-thirds quite fast. In other words, if you get too much fattishness in one sector or in one narrow index, of course you can get catastrophic changes like they had with the 50-50 in that former era. I don't see that happening when the index is three quarters of the whole market. The problem is the whole thing can't work perfectly forever, but it'll work for a long time. 95% of the people have almost no chance of beating it over time. Although the people expect if they have some money, they can hire somebody who will let them beat the indexes, and of course the honest, sensible people know they're selling something they can't quite deliver, and that has to be agony. Most people handle that with denial, <laughs> they think it'll be better next year, or they just don't want to think about it, and I understand that, I don't really think about my own death either, but. <laughs> But it's a terrible problem, needing those indexes. And it's a problem that investment professionals didn't have in the past. And what's happening, of course, is that the prices for managing really big sums of money are going down, 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 20 basis points and so on. The people who rose in investment management didn't do it by getting paid 20 basis points. But that's where we're going, I think, in terms of people who manage big portfolios of, say, American equities in the equivalent of the S&P. So it's a huge, huge problem. And it it makes your generation of money managers have way more difficulties than, and it causes a lot of worry and fretfulness. And I think the people who are worried and fretful are absolutely right. I would hate to manage a trillion dollars in the big stocks and try and beat the indexes. I don't think I can do it. In fact, if you look at Berkshire, Take out 100 decisions, which is like two a year. The success of Berkshire came from two decisions a year, over 50 years. We're hardly great. We may have beaten the indexes, but we didn't do it by having big portfolios of securities, and having subdivisions managing the drugs and subdivisions. And so, no, the indexes are a hell of a problem for you people. But, you know, why shouldn't life be
5: harder? It's what had to happen, what's happening now. So, Hari, I would like to kick this over to you here soon, because early in one of our mastermind discussions, you actually brought up the concept about Nifty 50, which is a really interesting point, especially given the stock market we have today. So perhaps if you can briefly explain what it is, the concept, and then also how it relates to today and then passive investing.
2: Yeah, I remember that conversation at stake and it was in the context of the nifty 50 era back in the seventies where companies like Xerox and a couple of the favorites, McDonald's were believed to be so good that the price didn't matter and people were encouraged to just buy it and forget it. And I guess Munger is talking about those eras and the index funds are Funds focused on those nifty-fifties during that time, later on, basically, were self-defeating in the sense that the stocks became so expensive that eventually it was a disaster for many investors. And Munger is basically talking about how index funds can basically self-destruct if taken too far. However, as you noticed in the talk, he thinks it has not approached that level yet, as long as we are focusing on a broad index.
5: Yeah, because it's really interesting what he talks about. He's talking about how you can beat something up to 60 times earnings. That's what he's talking about, which seems like outrageous today until you actually read the income statements for a lot of different companies. One company that might come to mind is something like Tesla. I mean, Tesla would be really happy if they had a PE of 60. They don't. They have a market cap around 60 billion, as far as I remember. And I think last year, they lost something around seven or 800 million dollars. So, I mean, they would love a P ratio of 60. But that's actually what's happening right now. And that's also what he's discussing, even though he's saying that right now it might not be so much of a problem. But if you're buying an index fund that includes Tesla, then you are you're buying into a company that's losing money. And if everyone does that, that's basically what the question is all about. What happens then? Are we just bidding up stocks that might not make any kind of profit at all? And what Chelmunker talks about is what happened with the Nifty 50. They just lost you know, two-thirds of the market value just like that. Because in the end, if the valuations can't be sustained, that's just what happens. And the narrative is really hard to understand because whenever you're reading you know, the empirical evidence about fund managers, and that's also what Munger talks about, he's saying, well, 95% of people can't beat the market, so why shouldn't we invest in index funds? So if you have this idea that you should just always invest in index funds because you have no idea about the market it can also be disastrous.
2: Christian and you were having a conversation before the show, and it all boils down to your investment horizon. Many folks limit their investment opportunity just by their preferences. But if you are a savvy investor, as you rightly mentioned, stick, then invest index funds is just one of the options for you. But you are looking at individual companies, real estate, or commodities, or even cryptocurrencies. And you are making a conscious decision based on what's the right investment at that particular point of time.
5: Yeah. And to respond to your question and also to hand it over to you again, Hari, I'm curious to hear your thoughts because you hear someone like Warren Buffett, he's been saying multiple times that call it 98% of investors should be invested in index funds, especially if you don't have the time and skill to be invested in the market. Whatever you hear Chalmonger's response to the question, do you think we should evaluate what Warren Buffett is saying? Or do you think if Chalmonger has a different opinion? Is that how you interpret it?
2: To be fair to Buffett, I think he is clear in his advice. He says for know-nothing investors, the safest option is index funds. He doesn't necessarily say it's the best option for everyone. But for diligent enterprising investors like him, he wouldn't recommend index funds. I don't see Berkshire buying index funds yet, and probably there is a reason for that. And another thing that I always keep in mind is, whenever I am thinking about returns, the first thing I ask myself is, do I deserve it? I might want fifteen percent returns annually, but do I deserve it? Do I have have the intellect and the time to do the homework? And if I don't, Then I should be satisfied with whatever returns I would get from an index, however flawed they might be. But based on the historical record and the data we have, index funds have a track record of delivering six to seven percent return, at least in the US, which I think most investors will be happy to take.
1: Okay, so the next part here that we're gonna play, I found this exchange really quite interesting because One of the things that I think Charlie is really, really good at is just psychology in general and kind of mixing psychology with investing. And this next exchange covers that topic. And it's an idea of discarding your best ideas.
3: Uh, You said that any year in which you don't destroy one of your best loved ideas is a
1: wasted year. It's well known that you helped coax Warren towards quality, which was a difficult transition
4: for him. I was wondering if you could speak to the hardest idea that you've ever destroyed. Well, I've done so many dumb things. I'm very busy destroying bad ideas because I keep having them. <laughs> and so it's hard for me to just single out one from such a multitude, but I actually like it when I destroy a bad idea because I think it's my duty to destroy old ideas. I know so many people whose main problem of life is that the old ideas, displace the entry of new ideas that are better. That is the absolute standard outcome in life. There's an old German folk saying that describes it, he says, we're too soon old and we're too late smart. That's everybody's problem. And the reason we're too late smart is the stupid ideas we always have, we already have, we can't get rid of. Now it's a good thing that we have that problem. In marriage that may be good for the stability of marriage, that we stick with our old ideas. But in most fields, you want to get rid of your old ideas. And it's a good habit. And it gives you a big advantage in the competitive game of life since other people are so very bad at it. What happens is, as you spout ideas out, what you're doing is you're pounding them in. The person you're really convincing is that you already have the ideas. You're just pounding them in harder and harder. One of the reasons I don't spend much time Telling the world what I think about how the Federal Reserve System should behave and so forth is I know that I'm just pounding the ideas into my own head when I think I'm telling other people how to run things.
1: All right. So I personally loved this exchange and it reminded me of a quote that I had seen and I apologize that I don't know the source of this quote and I'm doing a variation of the quote, but it's basically like most people are dead at the age of 40, even though they're still living. And what the quote's getting at is, How many people out there do you know that are 40 years old and from in their life when they're 40 till the day they die, they're doing the exact same thing. They're thinking the same exact way. They're not learning anything new. It's almost like they have a programmed response. like They're almost like a computer going through an algorithm and going through the same routine every single day. They're not challenging and destroying preconceived notions and ideas that they had had. From those first 30 or 40 years of their life and so in a way you're almost dead at that point you're not doing anything new you're not living anymore and i really find a lot of value between the correlation of that quote and what charlie's talking about here where he's saying you've got to destroy bad ideas you've got to continue to challenge your thinking and you know watching the video and hearing him say this hari It seemed like this was a very, very important point for him and something that he really wanted to emphasize to the crowd. Did you get that feeling when you were there in person?
2: Yes, I did. And in fact, he brought the same topic up a couple of times, even though he was not asked about bad ideas, but he kept referring back to this idea of discarding bad ideas multiple times in different contexts. I think he values this very much. In fact, he has said many times that Berkshire is what it is today because of how Buffett has been a learning machine and has been constantly learning and growing as the business environments changed. And as part of that, he believes discarding old ideas is very important.
5: Yeah, it's a great point, Harry. And I remember whenever we did the episodes about the Berkshire Hathaway recent meeting and Warren Buffett and Charlie talks about the Apple acquisition. And Charlie actually took, he said he took that as a good sign that Warren Buffett was still learning. And I would just remember smiling whenever I was listening to that because one of the themes that we see again and again with these two are that they talk about how the ideas has really developed, like how they started out with these really basic ideas of only looking at you know, the hard assets and you know, the lowest possible valuations, how they went on to other acquisitions like cheese candy with more economic mode and where they didn't need to put in so much capital, then transitioning into utilities, where you actually need to put in a lot of capital, but that they simply needed that because they had you know, a portfolio that was just too large, but they still found a niche that was somewhat protected and had somewhat monopoly power. And now they're talking about going into what some people might call technology, or in any case, a different type of consumer good. And they kind of need to reinvent themselves all the time because the times are changing, the size of the assets on the management, they're changing as well. In this situation, having money is a really nice indicator of growing, if you like, but I think it's applicable for everything and not just investing. And I think probably Charlie Munger, more than anyone is really a, a learning machine into a number of different fields. And we'll talk more about that later in the show, but just something to leave out there for everyone. I mean, he is just, he's really modest in the way he's saying, I know a little about everything, but he's really a specialist in like almost everything you can think of out there.
2: That's a very good point, Stig. In fact, Buffett has been quoted saying that Munger is one of the few people who can get to the bottom of a topic Within 30 seconds and deliver key insights. And he has valued Munger's insights and feedback many times in his investing career.
5: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to
0: say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right,
5: back to the show.
1: All right, so the next question we're going to play is a question where a member of the audience asked Munger how he can get superior returns Kind of like the way that Buffett and Munger had achieved, and this was Charlie's response.
4: Well, I mean, I hear somebody really wants to get rich at a rapid rate in specifics. That is not what we try and do here. We want to leave some mystery so that you can amuse yourself finding your own way. You know, the good ideas that I have had. I've heard quite few. But the lesson I can give you is a few is all you need, and don't be disappointed. And when you find the few, of course, you've got to act aggressively. That's the wonder. And I learned that indirectly from a man I never met, which was my mother's maternal grandfather. He was a pioneer, and he came out to Iowa and fought in the Black Hawk Wars and so on. Eventually, after enormous hardship, well, he was the richest man in town and he owned the bank and so on. And he sat there in his old age. growing up. My, my mother knew him because you go to Algona, Iowa, where he lived and had the big house in the middle of the town. What Grandpa Ingham used to tell her is, there's just a few opportunities you get in a whole life. This guy took over Iowa when the land was black topsoil. Iowa was cheap, but he didn't get that many opportunities. It was just a few that enabled him to become prosperous. He bought a few farms every time there was a panic, you know, and leased them to thrifty Germans. He couldn't lose money leasing a farm to a German in Iowa. And, and, but he, he only did a few things. And I'm afraid that's the... you're not going to find a million wonderful ideas. I, these people the computer algorithms do it, but they have a computer sifting the whole world. It's like placer mining. And of course, every niche they're in, if somebody else comes in, the niche starts leaching away. I don't think it's that honorable way to make a living, by the way. I would rather make my money in some other way than outsmarting the trading system so I have a little computer algorithm that just leeches a little what everybody's trade. I always say that those people have all the social utility of a bunch of rats in a granary. <laughs> it's not that great a way to make money. I would say that if you make your money that way, you should be very charitable with it and you've got a lot to atone for. <laughs> and, So I don't think it's an ambition we should encourage. And the rest of us who aren't just leeching a little off the top because we're great at computer science. And that's what this room is full of. And if you're not finding it harder now, you don't understand it. That's my lesson.
2: So this was an interesting interaction because the person who asked the question was asking for specific advice and specific picks or tips. And you know how Munger reacts to such questions because he feels that you're not entitled to receive specific tips and you have to do your own homework. And so obviously there was that aspect to his answer, but he also said something else in terms of achieving superior returns. And that was about temperament, temperament in terms of being patient, as well as concept of having a concentrated portfolio and that's where he was giving his grandfather's example and he also went on to talk about his own experience later in the event where he said that he read Barons for 50 years and he found just one investment opportunity that turned his one or two million into 80 million and then he gave that 80 million to Lilu who turned it into 400 or 500 million. And he also said, by the way, I've been reading Fortune for more than 60 years and I haven't found an investment opportunity yet.
1: (laughs) I like that. I mean, nothing
2: against Fortune, but (laughs) he might later.
1: (laughs) I like that. That is good.
2: So I think what he's trying to tell the audience is, if you want to achieve superior returns, you've got to wait. And also, he's also talking about how hard it is to achieve superior returns. It's not easy. Yeah. I like it.
1: Okay. So the last question that we're going to play here is a really interesting exchange around the corporate structure of Berkshire Hathaway itself as a holding company. And the person gets into an exchange with Charlie about whether it's smarter to have a partnership or to do a holding company like the way Berkshire Hathaway was set up. And so you're going to be surprised by his answer here.
3: I want you to imagine you have the opportunity to invest with a couple of money managers that you really like and they offer you a couple different ways to invest in their strategy. So one way is through a partnership that would flow through the taxes, and the other way is through a corporation that would pay tax on the gains and the dividends. The corporation would serve no other function, though, other than paying taxes. So I think you'd be crazy to say that those two ways of investing are equally desirable. So, my yes, so You're certainly right about
4: that. It's pump crazy. That's exactly the way people who buy Berkshire are investing.
3: Yeah. So, well, so my question are correct. closer. It's fun
4: crazy to have a big common stock portfolio in a corporation and pay taxes compared to investing in a partnership that doesn't, and that's just the way the Berkshire shareholders have invested, and they have made whatever it is, twenty-five percent a year since we were there. But you're right; it's not the logical way to do it. So, my question is: if
3: you had to decide to invest in Pool A or Pool B, how would you decide? on what method would you use? To figure out what discount would make you indifferent to whether you invest through in the corporate tax paying structure. I think it is totally
4: term. asinine to invest in a portfolio of common stocks through a corporation taxed under the internal Revenue code under order a sub C or something. Totally asinine. And at Berkshire, the public securities keep going down and down as a percentage of the total value. So it doesn't matter. We're getting to be sort of a normal corporation. But I don't think anybody in his right mind should invest through a corporation in a puddle of securities. The tax disadvantage is so horrible. So I wouldn't even consider it. In other words, and I regard it as a minor miracle that we were able to get where we did. So of course you'd invest in a partnership.
3: So but anyone who invests in Berkshire has to decide what discount to put on a pool of securities that has a future tax lien on the gains. So just, do you have any mental model for...
4: Yeah, my model no. is to avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to invest in a security to see somebody else's corporation. You're totally right. But you already knew, by the way.
1: <laughs> so that exchange for me, <laughs> if people could see our Skype call, Stig, Hari, and myself are just grinning ear to ear because it's just crazy to listen to him say that. Because that's what Berkshire Hathaway is, (laughs) you know, like, and I loved his little snide comment there at the very end. And you already knew the answer to this, (laughs) but what a great question. And he obviously can't defend it through logic, but they've proven that it's the right way. Now, This is what my personal opinion is. The value that he's not discussing through this is... This idea of the disadvantages of a partnership versus a holding company. So the disadvantages with a partnership is that you get the money all at the wrong time. So when the market has a massive downturn and everyone's running for the hills because they're scared, they're pulling their money out of your fund right when you need the money to invest and buy the cheap assets. And whenever the market's booming, call it now, and everything's doing really good. Everyone's throwing money at you, and all the things that you can buy in the market are overpriced. And so that's a total handicap for a partnership. And whenever you have a holding company, you can actually do the exact opposite. So Buffett and Munger, if they wanted to, they could issue more common stock. They could raise more cash, put it into the cash account. And then whenever the market has a downturn, they could take that liquidity in that cash and invest it when everyone's selling their stock at a very cheap price. Heck, they could buy back their own shares off the market at a cheaper price and take advantage of the situation. So I really think that that's a very, very valuable part of this equation we're talking about that was never brought up. Munger didn't defend it in that way at all. But I'm trying to do that now, and I'm curious you know, what the audience might think. Hit us up on Twitter if you agree or disagree with my opinion. And I'm curious to hear what Hari and Stig think about this.
2: So, Pristin, that's right. Like, I wasn't sure whether Munger was teasing the questioner. Yeah. And you know, Munger is moody. And sometimes he doesn't have the patience to really explain everything and give him the context. So sometimes he just throws curveballs at people back. And if you see at the end, he says, I guess you knew the answer. And I think what you just described, Pristin, is like the second level thinking, what Harvard Marx calls the second level thinking. On the surface, if you just look at all the superficial data, yes, partnership in this situation is better. But if you look at the second level of things that Berkshire has, what Munger calls the Lola Palooza effects, including the permanent capital that you described, the holding structure definitely made sense. And we have to be cognizant of the fact that it was Munger and Buffett who formed this structure. and. They would have put a lot of thought into it. And Buffett was actually operating as a partnership before. And there is a reason why he got out of that partnership model into this holding company.
1: Model. <laughs> Stig, I'm curious to hear what you think. Do you think he was antagonizing the person asking the question because he was so smart that he was dumb in a way?
5: Yeah, I think what really ticked him off was that he knew it was not really a question. It was actually because the person asking the question wanted to hear himself talk and really come with an insightful question. When it was something a lot of people have really haven't thought about. He didn't give him a morsel. He didn't give him anything. He just, no. Yeah, I, I think
1: that was actually why. Hara, you were there. What do you think?
2: No, I think that's what like, a lot of us came off thinking is that it was definitely a curveball back at him.
1: Wow. Very interesting exchange. So that's all we have for this episode. It was pretty fun to uh, pick through some of this. Hari, any uh, concluding remarks that you had from going to the meeting that we didn't have an opportunity to play that really kind of leaves a mark in your mind that was really important?
2: One of the things that really stuck me was Munger's reflection on his life and also his thoughts about mortality and. Many times he brought up the fact whether he will be there for the next annual meeting or even brought up the topic of mortality once when he said, we are glad we are still getting to do what we love to do when we should all be dead. So I think he is very aware of his mortality. And that was also kind of sobering to see him talk about it multiple times. It's very personal. So that was definitely something that I took away from that meeting. And I hope to see him next
1: year. <laughs> well, I thought there wasn't going to be a meeting or something.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Hari, it was just such a pleasure having you here this week. And we really appreciated you doing a lot of the research and giving us handoff to the, the various parts of the interview that we could talk about. It was just always such a pleasure to have you on. If the audience wants to learn more about you, Hari, where can they find you?
2: I'm always there on my blog, bitsbusiness.com. And also at Twitter, my handle is at Hari Rama.
1: All right. We'll have links to that in our show notes. So Hari, thank you so much for joining us this week. It was such a pleasure to have you on the show.
2: Thank you, guys. It's always a
5: pleasure. All right, guys. That was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode of The Investor's Podcast. We see each other again next week.
3: Thanks for listening to TIP.